Tuesday, May 23rd, 2023, from Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the school shooting at Robb Elementary in Uvalde, Texas. The media checking in on the live shattered, the slow response, not just from police at the scene, but leaders in sharing accounts and sharing details and being transparent afterwards. That's all good and proper. Answers and accountability in this instance are needed. But to have this, the most horrific mass shooting of last year, as a stand-in for the problem of shooting in America, is misstating the issue, and that has consequences. ABC's This Week, This Week, assembled a panel of victims of gun violence. And the quotes and insights elicited were powerful. Emma Riddle was on the scene for two separate school shootings, one in her high school and then again at Michigan State. When you go through this the first time, they tell you that, like, it's never going to happen again. Like... You get through this and you're done, but then you go through it again. And it just, I think it completely ruins your sense of safety. Understandably. Another family member of a victim was Lucy McBath, now a member of Congress, whose son Jordan Davis was gunned down after a gas station patron thought his friends were being disruptive. As a lawmaker, here's what McBath advocates for. I want to be able to know that everyone across America feels safe. They feel safe. They can live their lives fully without the fear of everyday gun violence. Part of her agenda is to pass red flag laws and background checks, but a major element is banning assault weapons. Assault weapons don't cause what she just referred to everyday gun violence. The family members assembled do not represent the victims of everyday gun violence. Four of them lost family members in the most arresting, headline-generating types of gun violence, the mass shooting incident with multiple victims. It can be argued that Macbeth's son was shot and killed during a dispute, which is much more typical of gun violence, but it too was atypical. If the panel assembled by ABC were to represent America, we might have... 10 people on screen, and six would be related to a young black man lost to gun violence. Also, of the five shootings reflected in the ABC panel, only one was perpetrated by a black man, whereas a representative panel would have three out of five be an African-American who pulled the trigger. But my critique is not about blaming perpetrators. It's about getting Americans to understand what gun violence really is. Our problem is the persistent bang, 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 in certain neighborhoods, night after night after night. 1.5% of the country's population lives in a census tract that accounts for 25% or more of America's gun homicides. So what would happen if the casting of an ABC This Week panel were reflective of the face of actual murder? I think the network executives would worry. I think they'd ask, will people watch? Will people identify with this mostly black panel with their hearts still go out? I'd like to think so. I'd like to think Americans aren't so heartless. I think we're sympathetic. Sympathy alone is not enough to solve a problem, but it's certainly sure that no problem's going to be solved without evoking sympathies, with ignoring it. We don't even give viewers and citizens a chance to really grapple with the problem. Emma asks an understandable question of her experience. We've been doing like the drills since elementary school. Like, why do drills when you can just stop the problem? 
That's because the problem, as she experienced it and as the panel posits, are of usually a deranged gunman shooting strangers, or in the case of Jordan Davis, an angry stranger shooting a person he just met. That is not the actual gun problem. And the drills that Emma and everyone else are subjected to, they won't come close to solving the actual problem. And in fact, I'm beginning to believe those drills more and more just make other young people like Emma, who are almost certainly not going to be actual victims of gun violence, scared, anxious, and despairing. There's a lot to despair about with gun crime in America. The experiences of those depicted on the ABC panel absolutely deserve our hearts to go out to them. But our heads should be focused on the other 25,000 or so slain Americans whose experiences are quite unlike what we're asked to focus on. On the show today, debt, almonds, and the river that flows through those topics. But first, it can be hard to hold the narrative of the values of America in your head all at once. We're committed to freedom as founded by slave owners. Hmm. Well, my next guest has a proposed way to understand America, to incorporate the flaws along with the greatness. And he looks to our founding documents, but not at the exact time they were written. Mm -hmm. Kermit Roosevelt is a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. And he thinks we'd be better served to pick a starting date of America that is not when the Constitution was drafted, but when it got a little more close to a perfect union. Kermit Roosevelt, up next. The standard story of the United States is that we have these ideals, you probably know them, we could quote them from the Constitution or the Declaration, Life, Liberty, Pursuit of Happiness, and we might not have been perfect at first, but we realize them over time, certainly post-Civil War America is the America that America was meant to be. This is not that rigorous in interpretation, but it is also not that helpful in interpretation. With a better idea about how to understand the standard story, joining me now is Kermit Roosevelt, a professor of constitutional law at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of The Nation That Love, hmm? The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. Welcome to The Gist. Thanks so much for having me. As I read the book, It struck me that this was a diagnosis of the problem. So the diagnosis is fascinating. But first, let's get into the problem. I'll frame it this way. Do we have a problem with the people of America not believing enough in the story of America? Yes, I think we do. Um, I think this is a problem that's gotten worse over the past few years. I think it's a problem that's more severe with younger people. And it's more severe with progressives also, I think. But the situation we have now, I think, is one in which we're asking people to identify with a nation that they don't identify with. We're asking them to embrace a set of heroes that they don't see as heroic. And, okay, I'm going to ask, and should they, but before we get there, I I think that you're a progressive, and uh, I, I would say I'm 
maybe a progressive, somewhere, somewhere center left. And I think that it's not only the progressive's fault that they don't identify with the story because my analysis is so much of the story has been enforced and dictated by uh, non-progressive ideology, which doesn't even account for some basic truths. But what's your analysis? Yeah, so I think the story is supposed to be progressive. You know, you talk about universal liberty, you talk about equality. Those are progressive values. I think. I mean, different people have different understandings of equality, and you can get a conservative version of the story, too. So our standard story is supposed to be something that both conservatives and progressives can find themselves in. But I, I think the problem is that it actually doesn't promote the values it's supposed to promote. So, so your project here is, well, let's tell them a better story, and guess what? A more accurate story. So what's the better story? So the better story is... American ideals come from dissent and from revolution, but it's not dissent against the British crown. It's not revolution against England. It's more dissent from founding America. So like the America of 1776 and 1787, every state recognizes slavery. It's not a very equal place. There are lots of people who can't enjoy liberty. And there are people who criticize that world. Um, primarily abolitionists, I think. And abolitionists come up with this idea that America stands for liberty for all, and America stands for equality in a way that you don't really see in 1776. They're saying it's the ideal that America is committed to, because you always want to say that. You always want to be like, yeah. I'm calling on you to accept my values because these are the true values of America. So we get this articulation of anti-slavery ideals, and I, I like to look at the Gettysburg Address, um, and we get a war against slavery. And like we like to say it's the revolution. Our standard story tries to tell us the revolution is a war against slavery, but it's not really. Um, but the Civil War really is. And then we have a revolutionary shattering and remaking of the existing constitutional order, which is Reconstruction. And this is where our American ideals really come into the Constitution and where we really start to be a nation dedicated to equality. Right. So in your book, in your teachings, in your conception of how to, uh, let's say, rebrand America, Amer don't start with, well, certainly don't start with 1776. There's no legal controlling document. Don't start with 1787. Start with 1868. That's the constitution that we should consider our constitution, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we should think about America you know, sort of more like maybe the way the French think about France, where they're like, look, we had lots of different republics, and it's a different nation. You know, if you want the counterpart to 1776, where you have the document with no legal force, but it states our ideals, that's 1863, I think, and the Gettysburg Address, or the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, if you want the counterpart to like 1787 or 1791, the ratification of the Constitution, when the political order really comes into being, that would be 1868 with the 14th Amendment. But it's the Civil War and Reconstruction. It's not the founding and the revolution. Okay, so the idea of France, that answers some of my questions, which is as, I don't know, maybe silly or insubstantive as it may seem, the consistency of a flag is important. The consistency of a motto is important. Just the idea of the, what is a country? It's an idea. It's a concept. It's not, you know, our borders are just drawn on a map uh, for the most part. There's the Rio Grande helps us in the South, but in the North, you could just walk right across. So in other words, you can still have a country, you could still have the idea of a country like the French do. They think about a 
you know, the French nation, but they think about their government as having been reformed many times. And that is a way for the United States to perhaps reconceive of here's what the real America is. And we don't have to get into those battles about if slaveholders, quote unquote, founded the country, because the country you're saying that we could think of, the founding was not the slaveholders, was after the Civil War was fought and won. Yeah. And, you know, historically, I think there's a really good basis for this. Um, but then the other thing that I would say is, why wouldn't you want to tell this story? Isn't this a better story? Like, our nation was born in a war against slavery, right? The war that ended slavery. Our heroes are the people who fought against slavery, right? The abolitionists, Abraham Lincoln, the Republican Party, uh, the Union Army, the black soldiers of the Union Army, right? That's a great set of heroes. Um, and, you know, stack them up against Thomas Jefferson, who enslaved his own children. And I feel like people should be happy to say, wow, yeah, that's where America really comes from. Yeah, but if we do that, we're saying, okay, let's think of Lincoln as our founding father. Uh, I'll, I'll stipulate he was the best president. So our founding father was wrong, fundamentally wrong, because he was fighting to preserve the union. Nope, he didn't preserve the union. He created a new country. Was he self-deluded? Was he lying for political expedience? It's more complicated than, say, uh, exalting George Washington as a founding father. Well, it is more complicated, right? Because the whole, the Lincoln's revolution is sort of accomplished in the name of a restoration, you know, which is a very American thing to do. But Lincoln does say, I've never had a political thought that didn't come from the Declaration of Independence. He does say, all honor to Jefferson, although the context of that, it turns out to be pretty strategic, um, mm -hmm. where he's trying to claim the mantle of the other side's guy. So is he wrong or is he being strategic? I don't know. Lincoln's very complicated. And I, I think it's hard to tell. I know, but it's complicated is a really tough uh, description for a founding father, or it's complicated is a tough description for the founding of a nation. Well, it's true. So, I, you know, for the founding of your nation, you want to say we're doing something new, right? Here's mm -hmm. this great yeah. idea that's never been articulated before. It's unheard of in the history of the world, what we're doing. It's so wonderful. And it definitely helps if you've got people who say we're doing something new rather than we're restoring something old. But I think like the history bears me out. If you look at the yeah. way the Declaration was understood in 1776, it's not what Lincoln's saying. So the idea that all men are created equal is something about how government should be run rather than about where government comes from. That really is an antebellum creation of the abolitionists. Is the newness of the country, is it more new, the change from 1860 to 1870, than it was from 1780 to 1790? Interesting question. I mean, I think a lot of people associate Reconstruction values with the founding, and that's really what our, our story encourages us to do. So, you know, we think that the Declaration of Independence is pro-democracy, but it's really not, and it wouldn't make much sense for it to be pro-democracy, because one of the things that the signers are trying to do is get support from France and Spain, which are, of course, monarchies. So the Declaration of Independence is not saying we're radical Democrats and we don't believe in kings because they want kings to help them. Well, that's um, all. But but to be fair, that's all that was out there. You know, they, they didn't want to be an isolationist state. They needed a king, uh, a, a king of France, for instance, to offer a hand. Yeah. Well, sure. No, there's lots of reasons why all this happens. Um, 
one of the things that I, I should stress sometimes, because people take this the wrong way sometimes, is my point is not like the founding fathers are bad. Um, mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, by the standards of their time, they're great and progressive. Yeah, and some more than others, right? Well, yes, some way more than others. Um, there are some that I really don't like that much. There are some I do like. And the U.S. Constitution of 1787 is democratic by the standards of its time, right? It's not a monarchy. It's got various anti-aristocratic provisions in it. We're like no titles of nobility. So definitely it has some good things, but it's not our modern idea of equality or democracy. And those really are reconstruction values. Your, your book, your ideas are interesting and fascinating on a couple levels. One is what are the facts that you surface and the interpretation of how the 1787 constitution is just so different from the actual uh, documents that govern America today. Fantastic scholarship. And then you come to the, uh, what are the implication part, which is mostly what we've been talking about, sort of redefining America from that point, from uh, post-Civil War Reconstruction, 1868. But what's to stop? And this addresses the thing we put our fingers on, that so many people are not believing in America as a unifying idea. But what's to stop us, and maybe nothing should stop us, from when the passions of the time uh, change a bit, to say, you know what? 1868, that was inadequate. America doesn't really become America until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, until actual democracy is realized for all its citizens. So are you suggesting a, a placeholder or a permanent solution? Well, I think it can be a permanent solution because I think, you know, you really do have the ideal of multiracial democracy and equality there in 1868. And the 14th Amendment could have been written narrowly in a number of different ways. And you can look at the ratification history and the debates in Congress, and they thought about it. They thought, maybe we'll just say, you can't treat people differently based on race. And they thought, maybe we'll just say, you can't discriminate with respect to civil rights. But they didn't do either of those things. So they really did give us, with the 14th Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause, this seed that contained the idea of equality from which our modern ideals can grow, and you see it with sex discrimination, and you see it with sexual orientation discrimination, and all of those really are fairly attributed, I think, to the idea there. Whereas, if you try to say, you know, the decision, Supreme Court decision recognizing same-sex marriage is implicit in 1787, no, it's absolutely not, right? The idea that the federal government is going to tell the states what they can and can't do in terms of how they treat their citizens, absolutely not there in 1787. Right, right. The 14th Amendment is more important to most people and our understanding of what makes America, America than anything that came before it, you're saying. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is the 14th Amendment is what gives us most of the Supreme Court decisions that people think of as Bill of Rights decisions. So people are like, wow, the Bill of Rights, it's so great. The First Amendment protects your freedom of speech if like, you want to burn a flag, because Texas v. Johnson, right? But guess what? That's a state. And the original Bill of Rights doesn't have anything to say about what states can and can't do. In 1787, the state wants to punish you for flag burning. It can do it. Or 1791, when the Bill of Rights is ratified. So 
our, our Bill of Rights cases are actually 14th Amendment cases. Our whole constitutional order is reconstruction. Reconstruction is what gives us the cases that we feel good about, that show us what our constitutional rights really mean, even the ones that we think of as being part of the first 10 amendments. Right. This is the process of incorporation. I never went to law school. Most people don't know about it, but they talk about our rights in the Constitution. It's like, well, our rights that you actually enjoy, they might have been mentioned in the Constitution, but you didn't get those rights as a citizen of the states until the 14th Amendment. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we have a branding problem. How do you find it's I can understand founding a country based on the Constitution. And also, it's a long running Constitution. So credit to that. To found a country based on the 14th Amendment. That's not even the money amendment. Right. Well, I mean, for me, it is right. I love the 14th Amendment. Like 14. I mean, well, you like it. But I mean, even the number 14, you wouldn't brand anything. What's so important about 14? 12 is important. 10 is important. I mean, 14 is just, you know, it's like a multiple of seven. Who cares? Hmm. Um, <laughs> it's two sevens. Yeah. It's uh, the second lucky I know, number. I know you've done a lot of interviews. This is the first time <laughs> that particular objection has been raised. I'm well, sure. yeah, no. So I haven't <laughs> thought about how to brand 14. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I have thought about like the 54th Massachusetts as the heroes of the Constitution, because I think that's an incredible story. So, like, on the one hand, you have people who are like, oh, you're taxing us too much. We're going to throw your tea in the harbor. Okay. I mean, you know, fighting for liberty, that's, that's fine. On the other hand, you've got people who are like, wow, this country enslaved some of us. It enslaved our ancestors. It took everything from us. It gave us nothing. But we believe this can be a better nation, and we're going to risk our lives to fight for, you know, the nation that never was, the America that still could be. Um, and that, like, I choke up every time I think about it. So if you want to be like, here are the heroes of our history, here are people who inspire you. I'm like the black soldiers of the U.S. Army. Those are the most inspiring figures for me. If we had to recast the founding fathers, Lincoln would be there. I assume Thaddeus Stevens would be there. Who else? Um, Thaddeus Stevens would be there. John Bingham. Um, Charles Sumner. So yeah. a lot of the radical reconstruction figures. And then, you know, you can put in civil war figures. You can have like Harriet Tubman and um, Robert Smalls, and you can have the black political figures from reconstruction like Hiram Revels and Blanche Bruce. So, I mean, one, I think these are better people, right? They didn't enslave others, which so many of the founding fathers did. Um, and it's more inclusive. So, you know, you can go back to the founding and people are like, oh, yeah, like Crispus Attucks. Um, there are some black founding era revolutionary heroes and there are some black soldiers fighting with the patriots. There are lots of black soldiers fighting with the British, uh, you know, probably four times as many. Um, and the British actually did give freedom to those people. They honored their promise to recognize the freedom of people who made it to their lines. So... You know, I feel like if you want to tell a story about multiracial America, believing in liberty, believing in equality, it's just a much better cast. Like, as you said, the cast of characters from the Civil War and Reconstruction. So one idea that you hear, I wonder how accurate it is, that America is the first country founded on an idea, sometimes expressed as an ideal Um we weren't, it's very important that we weren't just founded as a peoples, as an ethnicity, but as an idea. But I wonder about how, how 
much of the current fracturing and dissatisfaction with America is the fact that our ethnicity was once 90-something percent white and Anglo-Saxon white, and now is, you know, quickly approaching less than 50%. Um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of exactly what's happening. Because um, we like to say American was found, America was founded on an ideal, and like that's what holds us together. But for a lot of people, I think part of America was also feeling comfortable as part of the dominant group. And you can look at like the white Christian share of the electorate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you go back not that far, I think like 1990, and it's 70% of the voters are white Christians. Um, and now it's dropping below 50%. And people feel that. And they feel that the America they understand is being taken from them. But it's not the ideal that's being taken. Um, it's the hold on power that a political, a particular group has. So if you really believe in America as founded on an ideal, that's fine, right? Mm -hmm. We're still there. Nothing bad is happening from that perspective. I don't have to tell you this. Within academia, there is great dissatisfaction with the uh, standard story of America. How much, if your notion takes hold, how much will the new idea and the new story address the dissatisfaction? Because I often hear it expressed as, it's not just that America isn't living up to its ideals. It's that America was essentially founded on a lie and is not a country for me. So how effective is it say, oh, no, no, look at it this way? Well, I think it is effective because um, I'm saying America wasn't founded on a lie. America was founded on certain principles and they're not our modern principles. You know, it was just a different country. And I'm not asking you to believe that Thomas Jefferson stated our deepest ideals. And I'm not asking you to say that you identify with a slaveholder's rebellion, which is kind of what the revolution was. I'm asking you to identify with the people who defeated the slaveholder's rebellion, which is what the Civil War was. Yeah. So I think that people might have a less negative reaction to the founding fathers and so on if they're not being asked to identify with them, if they're not being asked to say, that's what's best about America. So you can say, hey, look, they were kind of progressive by the standards of their time, and they moved us towards democracy. They moved us in a good direction. Um, and I think people might even be more willing to say that if we're not saying, and embrace them wholeheartedly as you know, like the gods of our country. And we'll be back tomorrow with more of Kermit Roosevelt, law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, to speak about his book, The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. And now the spiel. Today in debt ceiling talks, no nothing. Nothing, not at all, no updates. I'm still honoring the just imposed moratorium. I will cover the debt ceiling talks when they are done and you will thank me. 
Really lots of good debt ceiling maneuvering, negotiation, coverage out there. If you're into that sort of thing, you could read it, you could watch it, you could listen to it, have at it, I say. Maybe if you issue bonds, you need to know about it. Or if you're Senator Bill Cassidy, or if you like gangs or the number eight or the gang of eight. That's a good gang. They can maybe solve this thing. Maybe you're one of the weirdos who feels that whatever is in the news, you got to follow it just because it's in the news. What is wrong with you? Now, I will say, I do follow the story. I keep abreast of it. I read a Politico story today. I read a story by Joe Nacera today. I read the Washington Post, the New York Times. Don't worry. It's not like I don't know about the debt ceiling and everything that's going on or not going on. It's just that I'm dedicated to not boring you with it. I want to do an interesting show, not a debt ceiling show. How exciting can the debt ceiling be? At first glance, debt ceiling, I've already created a deficit of interest. At second listen, debt ceiling, acknowledging there are limits to the conversation. It's so, so boring. I'm not saying it's not important. I am saying it's a own goal, a self-generated quasi-crisis. It's annoying, but it's boring. Almost as boring as the most boring topic in the world, water in the West. Three states out West have reached an historic water agreement to keep the Colorado River from going dry. Well, to keep the river from going dry? That does seem like an heroic intervention. You really could have said to stop slurping all the water from the Colorado River. Now, unlike the debt ceiling negotiation, this problem wasn't going to solve itself. And by the way, this plan, the plan that CBS Morning mentioned there today, that doesn't actually solve the problem. The problem's simple. People need water. People live out west. There's not enough water in the west. Got to take it from the river. There's not an unlimited amount of water in the river. Got to work it out. There's a tension. Now, I'm not an expert in why they're using so much water in the West. I do go back to the people need water dictum. But if I understand it correctly, with a little more depth, I think, and this is reflecting the latest infographic I saw, a single almond uses 800 billion gallons of water. I think that's right. I may be getting the exact figure wrong. But man, do almonds always get blamed when it comes to water shaming, when really... As people, I think we all need the water, and we just like the cashews and almonds. But, you know, if you read all these interactives online, these infographics, it it would strongly suggest that if you eliminated the cultivation of cashews and almonds, we'd all be fine. No need for three states to get together. Just say, screw the cashew guys. Only, that won't actually happen. It won't actually be solved. We as a species are kind of hydrocentric, and the Colorado has a lot of water. So we, the humans, are going to make sure that it keeps having water because even though we fight about who among us needs it more and who's to blame we don't have more of it, it would be in our collective interests for the water not to run dry. And that is why we're going to solve the debt ceiling. Like Lake Mead, that problem is man-made. And also like Lake Mead, national politics reflects the drying up of the reservoir of resources we could once rely on. But further like Lake Mead, it taint dry yet. So sorry to obliquely reference the debt ceiling, but I did make a triple analogy to Lake Mead, so I'm kind of proud of myself. And also, I say, 
Keep it tuned here. The gist, your source for lack of boring debt ceiling updates and only three second sound bites of coverage of water in the West. In other news, the Canadian prairie province of Alberta is experiencing wildfires, which is sad for the Albertans and I shan't burden you with. I will now leave you to a few more minutes to your own life. You're welcome. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara, War in the West, is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer of The Gist. I am in his debt. Michelle Pesca is the CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. That's what I say. And thanks for listening. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown.